This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Good morning, Anchor. Great to be here. My name is Brad Koneman. I'm part of the Chippendale Gospel Community. Hey, Chippo. It's really good to be here as we continue our series in Acts and I invite you to get your Bibles out or open the app on your phone and I want to encourage us church that this morning we are going to hear from God, that we believe that this book, that the Bible is the living word of God and that God himself will address us this morning and what matters is not my words, what matters is not Matt's words or Arnaldo's words or whoever's up here, what matters is that we are hearing from God. And so I invite you to get the Bible out uh, and as we're going through this sermon to see that what I say matches up with what God is saying in his word. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 13 verses 1 to 12 and we'll see the very first overseas missionary sent out by the church to take the gospel to the nations. And the theme that we'll be looking at is ready, set, go to the nations. So, Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Here we go. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. When they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, many of you will know Ruth and Scott Buchanan, who are part of the Anchor family and part of Ashfield Gospel Community. They should be coming up behind me. Are they there? Yay! Uh, We're really excited that Ruth and Scotty are planning to go to the Philippines as missionaries. 
and they've just been accepted by Pioneers, the missionary sending organisation. This photo behind me, you can see their acceptance of commission and they're pretty excited. Uh, they're planning to go over there to plant a church with the goal of reaching out to the marginalised, uh, those who are unreached by churches, those who are considered dirty and untouchable, the prostitutes and street kids. And I spoke to Scotty on the phone this week and I was personally so inspired hearing their story and hearing about all the answers to prayer that they've had in the lead up to, to going to the Philippines, how God has brought him and Ruth together and given them a com common heart for the marginalised. And at Anchor, we're so excited to have the privilege of sending them out, to be their sending church, to send them out to the Philippines next year, God willing, mid-2018. And we'll be supporting them and partnering with them financially as a family and praying for them and maybe sending teams over to support them. And we really see them as that they will be an extension of the Anchor family in the Philippines, living in community on mission for Jesus over there. Today, as we see the church in Antioch sends their very first missionaries, the first overseas missionaries sent out, I want us to ask, what does it look like for us to be a healthy missionary sending church? How can we send Ruth and Scotty in a healthy way? And I'm going to be suggesting that a healthy missionary sending church does three things. It actively waits on the Holy Spirit to direct the mission. It sends people out to go to the nations with the gospel. And it expects both a spiritual fight and spiritual fruit. So we'll see the missionary posture, actively waiting on the Holy Spirit, the missionary posture. Two, the missionary movement, go out to the nations. And the missionary moment, spiritual fight and spiritual fruit. So let's start with the missionary posture in verses 1 to 3. So we first met this church in Antioch back in chapter 11, uh, as Matt was preaching a few weeks ago, and this was the place where believers were first called Christians. And Matt showed us how it was established as a church planting and a missionary hub. And so what is the church doing here now in verse, chap in verse 2 of chapter 13? We see that they are worshipping and fasting. They're worshipping the Lord and fasting. They're waiting on God. They're actively seeking his will for the progress of the gospel to the nations. So what is their posture? They're not activists. They're not slouching on the couch. They're actively waiting on the Lord. And I want to suggest an image to help us understand this. I think this is like a runner on the starting blocks. On your marks, get set. They're waiting for the starter's gun. They're ready to go. They're actively waiting for God to direct the mission. It's kind of like a spring, you know, all the energy is in their legs. They're ready to explode out of the uns. So we can't use waiting on the Lord as an excuse for not going, can we? God has spoken directly and clearly in the Bible, directing us to take the gospel to the nations and to make disciples of Jesus. The need is urgent and the call is clear. So the posture of waiting is not about inactivity but it's about directing our energy, directing our missionary zeal into dependence on God because God is the great missionary. Mission is God's initiative. God is the one who has sent his son into the world to seek and to save the lost. God is the one who has sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts to bring us to salvation. He is the one who calls people to repent and put their faith in Jesus and be saved. He is on the move and we must follow him. So what's the posture, church? 
We're on the starters blocks. We're ready to go. Ready, set. Wherever he calls, we will follow. Is this our posture? When God looks at us, does he see us actively waiting? Or are we just getting out there as activists, not really worrying about God's will? Or are we slouches and lazy and not really doing anything for him? Are we actively waiting on the Lord? Praying, worshipping, fasting, desperately depending on God to direct the mission. Now this is to be our posture every day. Not just when we send Scotty and Ruth and God willing many others out to the nations. As we seek to live as everyday missionaries in Sydney, we should be seeking God's direction every day, relying on him. Because God is creating opportunities for us every day. We need to pray that he will give us eyes to see what he is doing and the faith to obey. So that's the missionary posture. But what does the Holy Spirit say to this waiting church? At the end of verse 2, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now notice that God doesn't tell them where to go. It kind of reminds me of God's call of Abraham. We looked at Abraham at the start of the year and God tells Abraham to set out from his family, to set out from his homeland and to go to a land that God will show him. But he doesn't tell him where. Abraham doesn't know where to go. All he knows is that he has to go. It's a call to obey God, not knowing exactly where he will take you, not knowing the details, but that God will be with you, that he will never forsake you and that he will use you for his purposes. And the church responds to this in verse 3 with prayer and fasting. So I want us to reflect a little bit on fasting because as we see this missionary posture of the church, fasting is at the heart of it. Now there's, there's no command in scripture to fast, but it is modelled by the early church and it is taught really clearly by Jesus. And indeed Jesus seems to have expected that his disciples would continue this practice. In Matthew 9 verse 15, uh, the Pharisees question Jesus why his disciples aren't fasting. And he says, well, while the bridegroom is here, while I'm here, there's no need to fast. But when the bridegroom departs, when I leave, then you will fast. Jesus seems to have expected that his disciples will continue this practice. So what is fasting? It's a negative action, like going without food, for the sake of of a positive action, like worship and prayer. As you deny yourself food, your physical hunger is meant to increase your focus on Jesus. As you remind yourself that your body is dependent on food, you also remind yourself that your ultimate dependence is on the Lord. Now, fasting doesn't need to be food. It could be from your phone or from Netflix or social media or shopping. But the purpose of it, regardless of what you're fasting from, is that it is towards God. It's to direct your devotion and your dependence towards the Lord. Now, if we are to be a missionary church whose posture is actively waiting on God to direct the mission, then maybe, just maybe, maybe we should be found fasting more than we are. I think that's a challenge to me personally. And I hope it's a challenge to you, church. After fasting and prayer, the church sends Saul and Barnabas out to the nations. And this is really interesting. Comparing verses 3 and 4, Dan's going to bring up these slides. Who's sending, who's sending these guys out? Who is sending Saul and Barnabas? In verse 3, 
they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The church sent them out. But then in verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. The church sends them out. The Holy Spirit sends them out. And I think it's really important for us to hold these two together. Both the church and the Holy Spirit send out these missionaries with the gospel. And John Stott really helped me on this. He's uh, a Christian, famous Christian pastor who died a few years ago, um, but wrote a, a wonderful commentary on the book of Acts. And he wrote, this balance between the church sending and the Holy Spirit sending, this balance will be a healthy corrective to opposite extremes. The first extreme is the tendency to individualism by which a Christian claims direct personal guidance by the Spirit without any reference to the church. The second extreme is the tendency to institutionalism, by which all decision-making is done by the church without any reference to the Spirit. We see this church actively depending on the Spirit to direct the mission as they send out Saul and Barnabas. The church and the Holy Spirit together send for mission. On your marks, get set, go. The missionary movement, go to the nations. And we see this in verses 3 to 6 as, Paul, as Saul and Barnabas head out from Antioch. The church sends them to go to the nations with the gospel as the very first overseas missionaries. They head out from Antioch. And I've got a map here just to help us see this movement because uh, this happened. This is history. This happened in real places uh, Saul and Barnabas started off from Antioch. For those trivia nerds, that's the present-day city of Antakya, uh, which is in Turkey, just near the border of Syria, uh, just, I think, 24 kilometres in from the coast. And they walked the 24 kilometres to the port at Seleucia on the river Orontes, and they got on a boat. They sailed across the seas and took the gospel to Cyprus, which is Barnabas's homeland. So this missionary movement is... A movement outwards, across the seas, get on the boat, go to the nations. And this, of course, is what Jesus commanded his disciples to do in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, you will receive power from on high and you will be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem. He didn't say, just stay in Jerusalem. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And the book of Acts traces that journey from Jerusalem to the ends of the, the earth. The missionary movement is a, is a movement outwards to the nations. And this, this moment in the book of Acts, right here in chapter 13, this is a significant turning point to the nations. Now we've met Gentiles in the narrative up until now. We met the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8. We met Cornelius in chapter 10. But the focus for this first half of the book of Acts from chapter 1 to chapter 12 is on Peter and the church in Jerusalem. But from this point in Acts chapter 13, Peter disappears. We don't hear about Peter anymore. And Paul steps into the spotlight as the apostle to the Gentile nations. And this is reflected really clearly in verse 9 for us. If you've got your Bibles there, have a look. But Saul, who was called Paul. Up until now, Luke has been using his Hebrew name, Saul. Because he's been focusing on the expansion of the gospel amongst the Jews in Jerusalem. But here he switches to his Greek name marking the transition and the turn to the nations. So that, what's the missionary movement? 
It's a movement outwards to go to the nations. Now, God's plan has always been for the nations. The story of the Bible is about God's plan of salvation going out to the ends of the earth. From his promises to Abraham, where he says, through you, the nations will be blessed. To his promises to Israel, that they will be a light to the nations. To the fulfillment of those plans in Jesus, who brings that salvation to the very ends of the earth and sends out his disciples and apostles to take the gospel to the nations. And ultimately, it is culminated around the throne of Jesus at the end of days where all tribes and nations bow down and worship our God. God's heart from beginning to end is for the nations. God's heart is for the world. God loves every single person he has made. But the tragedy is that every single person that he has made has turned away from him. No one is righteous. All are lost in sin and destined for hell. God's heart aches for the lost souls. He doesn't wish that anyone should perish, but that all should turn to repent. We started singing a really beautiful song last week here at Anchor, So Will I, and I really loved the line in it. Uh, I can see your heart eight billion different ways. Every precious one, a child you died to save. If you gave your life to save them, so will I. So will you anchor. Will you take your place in God's plan to take the gospel to the nations? There are lost people everywhere who do not know God, who do not know that they need this life-giving news that Jesus has died for their sins. Maybe someone sitting in the chair next to you. You are God's primary mission strategy for the lost. Now it's easy for us to be so narrowly focused and passionate about what God has called us to that we lose sight of this bigger vision for the nations. God has called us, anchor to the city of Sydney. Have we lost sight of the nations? This is a challenge for us. Is our vision big enough? Wherever we live, Our vision and passion should be that the glory of God, that the fame of Jesus is known to the very ends of the earth. And the reason that we are so passionately committed to seeing the gospel transform our city is because we are so passionately committed to seeing the gospel transform the nations. The missionary movement is outwards with the gospel. And that's why we're so committed to our multiply vision. Because it's it's a commitment to from the gospel to always be moving outwards, always be starting new things, always reaching new people, always starting new gospel communities and planning new churches and sending more missionaries that the whole world might be covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. Our vision, church, must be for the nations, a world that knows Jesus. And Paul's first missionary journey right here in Acts 13 illustrates the missionary movement that should characterize our church, a movement out to the nations. On your marks, get set, go to the nations. And we come to the missionary moment in verses 6 to 12. Now at Chippendale GC, every week as we're having dinner, we share mission moments with one another. We share opportunities that we've had to love our neighbours and to share Jesus with our friends. And it is really a highlight every week as we get together. It's so inspiring to hear how God is at work uh, through each of us. And I just wanted to share some of the stories that came in this week, just this week. Uh, I shared about my wife Catherine, who was up on stage with our daughter Eva before. Uh, She's had a really good opportunity to uh, 
reach out to and love one of the preschool mums at Eva's preschool and her younger daughter has been in hospital and so we got to cook them a meal and got to love them in a really practical way and that opened up more opportunities for Catherine to reach out to this mum. Amy was sharing how she had an opportunity with her co-worker this week who was asking her lots of questions, stuff like, if you were a superhero, who would you be or what kind of power would you want to have? And like questions like this over and over and Amy's like, I'm going to ask a question. I'm going to ask a question in response. She's like, do you consider yourself a spiritual person? He's like, oh, that's a great question. And went on to talk about his own conception of spirituality and then asked Amy about whether she was a spiritual person, and she got to share about her relationship with Jesus. That was amazing. Faith invited one of her colleagues to church. Kim was sharing, having a conversation with uh, someone about Buddhist meditation and how Kim doesn't think that we should try and detach ourselves from life, but that there is meaning in life. Uh, Mel had a performance review uh, where her supervisor was uh, saying, you know, you're just so consistent you just kind of fly under the radar but you're always trying to convert people um, and it was like a it was a friendly joke but you know she's known as like this bold Christian in her workplace she's got this reputation that she's wants people to know Jesus uh, Reese was sharing Reese works at Commonwealth Bank and he was sharing uh, an opportunity that he's had um, with one of his co-workers uh, to share a video testimony um, about an AFL player who fell into drugs uh, and his career kind of was destroyed through that and he rehab didn't work, nothing worked, but then he went to church and God completely turned his life around. He met Jesus and he's been clean and man, it was an inspiring testimony. And Reese showed the video to his co-worker at the CBA. And Joseph, a few weeks ago, um, was sharing that as we're hearing these stories every week around the dinner table about uh, how God is at work through us, that this has actually changed his, the way that he sees and lives his life. That he sees that he is an ambassador for Christ. That God has sent him out with the gospel to make the gospel known. Isn't that so inspiring, um, how God is at work? And so we come to Paul's missionary moment on the island of Cyprus. He arrives on the east coast at Salamis and goes on a preaching tour of the whole island, 150 kilometers from east to west, and arrives in Paphos, on the west coast and he encounters a Roman governor and a hostile magician and we see that the missionary moment involves a spiritual fight and spiritual fruit so the spiritual fight in verse 6 Paul meets a magician a Jewish false prophet called Elymas also called Bar-Jesus which means son of salvation now, Catherine and I have recently been watching The Flash on stand. We've never really been into superhero stuff, but we've started watching The Flash and we're kind of hooked on it. Um, and The Flash's nemesis is the reverse Flash, who has kind of the same superpowers, but he's the antithesis of everything that The Flash stands for. He's his enemy. And this guy here, bar Jesus, he's kind of like the reverse Jesus. He's the antithesis of our Savior. He's sold out God for magic. Jesus used his power to serve. But this guy is leveraging his power over the Roman governor, Sergius Paulus. Now, in verse 7, Sergius Paulus is one powerful, influential man. He's the Roman governor over the whole island of Cyprus. And Luke tells us that he is a man of intelligence. Now, I want you to imagine someone like this in the city of Sydney. Who might that be? Maybe the mayor of Sydney, Clover Moore. 
or the New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, someone who holds high office, who's intelligent and influential and powerful. People like this, they can often seem beyond the reach of the gospel, can't they? Could someone like this, the Roman governor, become a Christian? Well, Sergius Paulus has heard something and he wants to know more. He summons Saul and Barnabas so that they can tell him about Jesus. And these missionary nobodies come before the most powerful man on the island of Cyprus. But Elymas the magician puts up a fight. He opposes them and tries to turn Sergius Paulus away from the faith. And Paul interprets this as an attack from the devil. He calls Elymas, you son of the devil. You see, this this spiritual fight is not just Elymas against Paul. It's the devil against the Holy Spirit. And we see here that mission is a spiritual battle. It's a, it's a battle here for the soul of Sergius Paulus. And as we seek to live our lives as everyday missionaries here in Sydney, there will be spiritual opposition. We need to expect a spiritual fight. The devil will do anything in his power to stop people coming to faith. Now, the devil loves nothing more than our indifference and apathy. They weren't interested? Well, uh, I guess, oh well, doesn't matter. But if we really love people, church, then we need to be prepared to fight for them. Not to fight against them, to fight for them. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts this, who was a preacher uh, a few hundred years ago. I find this, this quote on the screen really personally challenging and convicting. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Are we willing to fight for our friends, to fight for our family, to fight for our co-workers so that they might receive the gospel and be saved? Paul here, he fights for Elymas. He fights for Sergius Paulus and confronts Elymas, just like Peter confronted Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. And in verse 9, we see that Paul is filled by the Holy Spirit. He's empowered for this spiritual battle with boldness and prayer. And what a stinging rebuke in verse 10. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? See, Elymas is against everything that God is for. God is truth. All his ways are right. And God is straightening up this crooked world by calling people to faith in Jesus. But Elymas is getting in the way of the work of God. He's trying to stop people coming to faith. And so what does God do? God punishes him. I found this on screen, Dan, this, this painting by Raphael in 1515, uh, the Italian Renaissance master or the Ninja Turtle. The blinding of Elymas. And you can see Sergius Paulus there on his seat. Paul and Barnabas on the left. Elymas. 
Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now do you remember Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9? What happened to him? He went blind. And now that same man curses Elymas with blindness, showing the power of the Holy Spirit over the power of the devil, over the power of darkness. See, this spiritual fight is really no contest, is it, church? There is no question about who will emerge victorious in the battle between light and darkness, between Jesus and all his enemies. Jesus wins. Isn't that good news? Jesus wins this spiritual fight. And so we see the spiritual fruit. In verse 12, Elymas the magician goes blind, but Sergius Paulus sees and believes. He puts his trust in the risen Lord Jesus and receives all the blessings of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, the new life that we have in him. You see, not even kings and governors are beyond the reach of God's hand. He is powerful to save and even the most powerful and influential people in our world are not beyond the reach of his grace. See, Sergius Paulus is astonished not just by what he's seen. What's he astonished by in verse 12? Did you catch that at the end of verse 12? Sergius Paulus was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And it reminds me of the response to Jesus' teaching that we see in Mark chapter 2. Uh, where Jesus' miracles validate his authority. In Mark chapter 2, we see Jesus walk into a synagogue in Capernaum and he's confronted by a man with an unclean spirit. And the man with this spirit comes at Jesus and says, What do you want with us, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Shut up. Come out of him. And the man starts convulsing and screaming and the demon comes out. And everyone was amazed. Everyone was astonished at this teaching with authority. What is this? Teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. How can we show our neighbours this teaching with authority? Can we offer miraculous signs to validate the gospel? John Stott, again, was really helpful as I considered this question and in avoiding two extremes. The extreme of saying, well, miracles never happen and that we should expect expect miracles as part of the everyday experience of the Christian life. John Stott says this on the screen again. If we take scripture as our guide, we will avoid opposite extremes. We will neither describe miracles as never happening nor as everyday occurrences, neither as impossible nor as normal. Instead, we will be entirely open to the God who works, both through nature and miracle. Even in the book of Acts, miracles are a little bit rare. Uh, But God works primarily through bringing people to faith through the gospel. So for us, how can we see people come to faith in the middle of this spiritual fight? See, the power is not with us or any signs that we can perform. The power is with God himself who overcomes the spiritual powers of darkness. The Holy Spirit validates the gospel. It's not the signs that tell us that this message is authentic. It's that as the gospel comes to us, we hear the living voice of God address us personally. The Holy Spirit validates and authenticates the gospel by regenerating us. He brings the dead to life. He makes the blind see. 
You see, we can't convince people to become Christians. Minds are darkened by sin and the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them seen. It's only as the Holy Spirit shines the light of the gospel into our darkened hearts that we can be saved. See, God, the good news is that God is very good at shining light into the darkness, isn't he? He did it in creation. Darkness was over the earth and he said, let there be light, and there was. He did it through Jesus, sending the light of the world into the darkness. And he continues to do it by sending the light of the gospel into our hearts through, through the Holy Spirit. As we share the gospel with our friends, the Holy Spirit himself validates and authenticates this message by speaking the gospel into the hearts of our friends and bringing them to faith. So while we expect a spiritual fight, church, we should have an even greater expectation of spiritual fruit. The message of Acts is that nothing can stop the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Dishonesty or division, persecution or imprisonment, magicians or the devil himself, nothing can stand in God's way or hinder his plan. The gospel is unstoppable. Jesus will build his church. He sent us out as his spirit-empowered people to make disciples and the mission will succeed. Isn't that empowering and exciting as we go out to seek to live as everyday missionaries that nothing can hinder the work of God that victory is succeed is assured so what, what have we seen church we've seen that a healthy missionary church actively waits on the Holy Spirit to direct the mission the missionary posture we've seen that a healthy missionary church sends out people to go to the nations with the gospel the missionary movement and we've seen that we should expect both a spiritual fight and spiritual fruit in the missionary moment. And I think this is a vital lesson for us personally as we seek to live on mission every day for Jesus. We need to depend on Jesus, to depend on the Spirit, to, to seek out the opportunities that he's bringing, us, bringing our way, expecting both opposition and conversion. And this is such an important word for us as we prepare to send out Ruth and Scotty next year. Uh, that we need to be actively seeking God's will and that as we send them to, to the nations that we are totally in line with his plan. So I'm going to lead us in prayer now, prayer for us, but also I think it's really important for us to, to pray for Ruth and Scotty um, as we prepare to send them out. So I'd love you to join, join me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've had for us today, that nothing can stand in the way of the gospel, that even though there is a spiritual fight, that you are more powerful than the powers of darkness. That you will bring people to faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit to live on mission every day. Help us to daily, actively wait for you, to seek your will, to seek out the opportunities that you are bringing us. Please use us powerfully for the kingdom. And we pray for Ruth and Scotty, as they prepare to go to the Philippines next year, we ask that you would prepare them to serve, that their trust would be in you, uh, that you would use them mightily to bring uh, many people into your kingdom, to show many people uh, on the margins uh, your love and your grace. Uh, and Father, we, we pray for us as they're sending church. We ask that we would be right behind them in prayer and in finances and seeking to bless them as they go. Father, we know we need your help in this. So please bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.